Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Thanks to Linus for uh, speaking the word to us today, (laughs) or at least speaking the scripture to us today. All right, uh, good morning, church. How are we doing? We're doing good? So Merry Christmas to all of you, and we are uh, doing the Christmas play tonight, and I am beyond excited to come and laugh my head off. This is going to be hilarious, and uh, so uh, try, to get, try to make it out here if you can, or at least tune into the live stream. They've worked hard, and it's going to be really fun to see this. Uh, but one other thing I wanted to mention, um, next year, I, I encourage you, we, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but we're going to um, have another Bible reading challenge. Um, this time, it's New Testament only, and uh, we've got, it's going to be set up in the Dwell app, and there's also a prayer app that will go along with that so that you can um, pray along with us as you're reading scripture through the New Testament. Um, so all of that information is on the public. Make sure you check that out. And it starts first of next year. All right. So we're continuing our series in the book of Luke. And uh, we'll take a break after this uh, for a few weeks, uh, about two months, actually. We've got another series uh, that we're going to do in January. Uh, but then we'll get back into the book of Luke probably uh, around mid-February. So so far, what we've seen in Luke chapter 1, let me just recap a bit of the story. All of the events so far in Luke chapter 1 have been leading up to the moment that we're going to look at today. And this story has been focused in on two women, two childless women. You have Elizabeth, who was married, but she was childless because of some issue with infertility. And then you have Mary, who was unmarried, and she was childless because of her virginity. Now, on two separate occasions, the angel Gabriel appears um, to uh, Zechariah and to Mary. But the angel Gabriel appears and makes a promise to give to each woman a child of her own. And Gabriel also prophesied what would make each of these boys unique. So you have these two women who are going to give birth to these two boys. And they're all connected together. They're related to one another. But as we see from uh, Gabriel's appearance, that there is a a divine purpose that ties them together. So uh, Elizabeth is the mother of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament type prophets. And he was called to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now Mary, she is the mother of Jesus Christ who is the Messiah, the Son of the Most High God, who will sit on David's throne and whose kingdom will have no end. So in Scripture, some of God's greatest acts of redemption and power begin with a birth narrative. You see this in Jacob and Genesis. You see this with Moses and Exodus. You see this with Samuel. You've seen it with John the Baptist. And now we see the birth of Jesus Christ that we're going to look at today. Jesus is the final birth narrative that we see in Scripture. And it precedes God's greatest act of redemption. That's what we're looking at today. So let's dig in. We'll start off with the birth of Jesus. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, Jesus is born. And we'll read, we'll cover about, I don't know, what, 20 verses or something today? 20 verses. But we'll start here, verses 1 through 7. 
In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we start off with this humble town. Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth, but the Messiah was expected to come from Bethlehem. Let me read to you from the book of Micah, where we see this prophecy made. The book of Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Bethlehem was this little town, right? It's a, it's a tiny little town, but it is theologically significant. You know, in the book of Genesis, uh, Rachel, she was buried there. And the story of Ruth took place mostly in the town of Bethlehem. And Ruth's great-great-grandson, however many generations between, Ruth's great-great-grandson was David, who was Israel's greatest king. And Micah 5 says that the Messiah will be a ruler in Israel from ancient days, meaning that this Messiah will be of the lineage of David. It will be a, a ruler in the form of or in the mold of King David. And Luke is showing us that Jesus' birth fits the messianic profile, the expectation of what the Messiah would be like. So his birth is the fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Luke tells us this story to show us that even though they're from Nazareth, this is how it came about that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, which was not his hometown. And then we have these humble circumstances, too, surrounding this birth. Not only was Jesus born in a humble town, but these humble circumstances surround his birth. They were in the town because of this census, right? So Caesar Augustus must not have known that pregnant women should not travel in their third trimester, but it didn't matter to him. So uh, Mary and Joseph were there in, in Bethlehem for this census. And so they're, they're here away from home. They're away from the support that they would have had at home. And whenever the time came to give birth, there's no mention of a midwife there's no mention of a grandmother or family to help out. There's no angelic chorus there in Bethlehem. There's no doctors or nurses. There's no medical staff. As far as we know, at the birth of Christ, it was just Joseph and Mary. There isn't anything here to suggest that the most glorious event that has ever taken place has just happened here in Bethlehem. It's just this, this girl and this boy, Joseph and Mary giving birth in this really strange circumstance, wrapping him up in clothes and lying him in a manger. So if we were to judge by appearances only, outward appearances only, we might think that this is just another poor girl without much help or support, with an unplanned pregnancy. Probably she wouldn't have been able to afford to raise this boy. And he probably wouldn't have amounted to much anyway. I mean, it's a small town. 
And, and that's the wonderful thing about the incarnation. The incarnation of Christ where God became a man. Jesus came in humility. He came taking the form of a servant, Philippians 2 tells us. The fact that a holy and righteous God could inhabit our profane world in such a way is beyond comprehension. God had come down. God had come near to us. He was present with Joseph and Mary in this spectacular and miraculous yet incredibly intimate way, just the three of them. Nobody would have known what had just happened. Nobody in town would have known that God was just born. Mary and Joseph had some clue, but they wouldn't have understood the full weight of what was happening. So this most amazing display of God's power in the history of the world went completely unnoticed. It's comforting to realize that God's power doesn't always look like tornadoes going through a town or lightning strikes or these incredibly big displays. God's power is present. God's power is working in ways that we would easily overlook. He's present in places that we would never notice. God is with us in the ordinary. God is with us in the mundane. I asked Laura to help me this week to think of all the babies that have been born in our church this year. And uh, Laura's good at this game. <laughs> she counted 18, so that, uh, that may be accurate. We'll see. But I think there's about 18 babies that were, that were born in our church just this year in 2021. So it's 18 families that have had their lives changed completely. Many of these are first-time parents. They've had their lives changed by the most mundane and ordinary responsibilities that people could have. Changing diapers, feeding a baby, sleepless nights, and just basically sitting around, bloodshot eyes, making sure the child doesn't do anything to kill themselves. But it's, it's mundane, right? There's, there's nothing, I mean, in, in a way it's extraordinary, but in other ways it's, it's, it's so boring. I mean, it's, it's, it's the times that it's not boring, it's boring, it's not boring in ways that are like really annoying, you know? <laughs> And then you have these little moments that are punctuated with cuteness that makes it all worthwhile. And then they, you know, they grow up and become teenagers, but the, which is a whole other thing. I'll tell you about that in a few years. But, but that's, it is a mundane thing. It is, it is, a, it is a beautiful and incredible and, and life-altering thing, but it's also an incredibly mundane thing that happens. You know, it's also exciting and new and fun at the beginning. And that excitement lasts about as long as the meal train lasts. And then once that's over, and mom and grandma or whoever's in town or whoever you've got maybe helping you out for a little while, whenever that's over, I remember whenever Reese was first born, it's like, you know, all of that stuff happened, and then we had all the free meals, and we had the family in town, and then everybody left, and then Laura and I were just sitting there looking at this baby and thinking, what have we done? What have we gotten ourselves into? We're not ready for this. But God's power is present in those mundane things. In those ordinary things, he's present in the mundane, his powers at work in the ordinary. He moves in unexpected places. You know, most of us aren't going to have exciting jobs. If we're to take a survey of just what our jobs are in this room, most of us probably don't have the sort of jobs that we get like, oh, okay, that's really amazing. 
No, most of us are just like, well, I work with Frank in accounting. You know, or it's like, it's, it's, something, it's something mundane, it's ordinary. And a lot of us might think it's like, well, you know, I, I don't really, there, there's not really something for God, God doesn't have anything for me here. Because it's, it's, it, we, we think that God only moves in these, these mountain-moving sort of ways that really grab our attention, and we often don't notice the small little ordinary ways that God is at work in our lives. So most of you, you're not going to have an amazing career. That's okay. Who says you have to other than Disney movies? We don't have to have amazing careers. We can do ordinary mundane things. We can do ordinary mundane tasks to be faithful in the small little things. And that's good. Joseph and Mary, they're, other than being the parents of Jesus, which is a big deal. I'm not discounting that. But otherwise, what's really noteworthy about them? She had a baby. She was a virgin, but she had a baby. So I was like, okay, that was, that's pretty cool. But she had a baby. She raised a child. Joseph was a carpenter. Evidently, he died pretty young. But it's not as though they otherwise had these spectacular things about them. They, they were ordinary people. Judging by appearances only, you might not see God working in your life at all. Don't count God out. Don't think that God has to do some some massively spectacular thing before you'll recognize that he's at work in your life. Because as we're about to see, heaven's perspective of this ordinary mundane event is very different than our perspective, our human perspective. Well, let's take a look at that. The angels, the angels appear now. Verse 8, and in the same region, here's where Linus read, and here's the, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Linus read the King James Version. He said they were sore afraid. Have you ever read that in King James? What does sore afraid mean? But it's like it's in there. So they were sore afraid. Anyway, ESV says they were filled with great fear. That's a little bit easier to understand. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's talk about angels for a bit. Not the California baseball team. Let's talk about angels in the Bible. Maybe they play baseball in heaven, we'll find out someday, but we're talking about angels in the Bible. So, first off, real angels are not white-robed Caucasians with shoulder-length salon hair and feathery wings. I, I did a, a Google image search of angels, and 
some of the most silly things that you can imagine, like, showed up. It's like, this is what people think angels are. Little babies, little fat, chubby babies with wings hanging out the back. It's like, nobody's going to be filled with great fear when they see, well, I guess they might be, af- they might be afraid if you see that. I'll take that back. But it, it, afraid in a different way than what seems like what's going on here. It's like, it's, it's, it's just kind of creepy, some of the things that you see. But what we see in the Bible is, is not these, you know, angels, like, don't have it's not like they have these wings, you know, they're floating around. It's like these are amazing creatures. I want to talk about them for a few minutes. So contrary to what you might have heard, angel does not denote a category of being. It's not as though uh, God would gather up all the angels and they're all this particular kind of being. Angel is a job description that any number of different divine beings might, might have. So the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that is a reference to God himself who is present. So God himself appears and he's called the angel of the Lord. But there are other beings, other heavenly divine beings that are messengers. It's a job description and they, uh, they appear. So angel is a job description. Angel is not a category of being. So the word angel literally means messenger. When, and whenever they appear in the Bible, for this reason, they appear because they've got something to say. When you see an angel in the Bible, they're there because they're, they want to announce something. They're there to deliver a message because angel is a messenger. It is a job description. And in the Bible, whenever they do appear before people, almost invariably, not always, but most of the time, the people who, who uh, see them, they fall on their faces in terror. I mean, these are incredibly terrifying beings. So what is so scary about them? What's so scary about angels? It's common to think that angels are out there somewhere, and humans are down here on earth, right? So you have angels, well, they're up in heaven floating around. They're, you know, maybe out in outer space somewhere. They're, they're out there somewhere, but here we are, we're down here on earth. But angels do keep track of us, kind of like the way the CIA keeps track of Jason Bourne. You know, they're just, they've got this room with these TV screens, and you've got these angels around. It's like, oh, you know, you know, there's Bill. Let's, uh, let's, we got to send somebody over to Bill. And Bill's like, I'm ready, sir. And the, Bill, you know, the angel will go and hang out with Bill. It's like, that's the way we think. It's like, well, they track us, but generally, they, they just kind of, they, they're doing their own thing. And we're doing our thing, and occasionally they might show up to help us out. You know, if you need a parking spot or whatever, an angel may help you and because that's your guardian angel. I mean, these are, these are pop culture things. Reese was in, a, in the play It's a Wonderful Life in her school, and uh, she was one of the angels. And so it was just like, you know, she's trying to speak with authority and all this. It was, it was kind of funny. Uh, she did a great job, uh, but it was, it was just kind of like these high school kids. Like, they're angels. And I'm like, I'm not really terrified right now, you know, <laughs> especially, you know, like an angel is just like a, a little flashy star like it is in the movie, you know, and you got Clarence who's coming down and he's this bumbling idiot. Um, that's not what angels are like in scripture. It's a very different thing. The worldview of the Bible, the Bible depicts humans and divine beings inhabiting the same world. We inhabit the same uh, universe, the creation, and there are humans that we see because we're material beings. But then we have divine beings, uh, these, what we would call angels. We have these divine beings that inhabit space that we can't see them because they are not material, they're spirit. So we, we see these things poking through in the Bible a few times. So Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says uh, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, which is material things, but 
Instead of flesh and blood, we wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what is animating and behind a lot of the material things that we experience, right? So the world is filled with all kinds of these divine beings. Now, we don't know a lot about them um, because there's not like a, this lengthy presentation of you know, the, the very nature and the classifications of angels. It's like we don't know a lot about them from what the Bible gives us. And so what we do is we use a shorthand and we squish all of these different kind of creatures into the good guys, which are angels, and the bad guys, which are demons. But there's this whole variety of different kinds of beings, different kinds of divine creatures. And whenever they appear to deliver a message, we call them angels. But then there are all kinds of them that we don't, we don't encounter and we don't call them angels. Isaiah 6, for example, or the seraphim. They're not, they're not angels because they're not delivering a message. They're, they're there worshiping God. And they're not speaking uh, necessarily to, to, to humans in that, in that scene. So humans, we occupy this material realm. So God created us with physical bodies through which we experience the world. And in our physical body, we do ordinary things. We get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, some of you. Uh, you, you go to school or work, you hang out with your friends, you raise a family, you take your kids to soccer practice, you live in a neighborhood or a city, you live in a state, in a nation, physical things. But these divine beings, they occupy an immaterial realm that is coexistent with us here, but it's, an, it's, it's spiritual, it's immaterial, it's not something we can see. We don't know nearly as much about that, but it's just as real. The scripture treats it as just as real. So if you're following along in our Bible reading plan, um, you're probably in the book of Revelation right now, right? So in the book of Revelation, um, you, we meet one of these guys, uh, well, actually four of them in Revelation chapter 4. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, says that there are four living creatures full of eyes, eyes in front and behind. These creatures are full of eyes. That's weird. I would be terrified if I saw one of those, you know. And then it says, well, of these four, they kind of like four of them. One looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like a man, and one looks like an eagle. These are creatures that really exist. The scriptures do not treat them as mythical, you know, figments of the author's overactive imagination. These are real beings, real creatures that exist. And all of these creatures were created to serve and glorify God in some way. They, they fulfill some purpose within this spiritual realm, which is no less robust and active and real than our, as ours. So some of them are glorifying God, and some of them are in rebellion against God. Now, these two realms are joined together. There, there's interplay between them. These two realms are joined together. It's not as though these are completely independent realms that don't have any interaction. These are overlapping realms, but we just, on the human, as humans that are physical, we can't see what's happening in the spiritual realm. So these realms are joined together, and there's this massive cosmic struggle that is playing out at the same time in both of these realms. The earth is at the heart of this struggle, and things that take place in both realms impacts the other. That's why Paul says that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. What we're wrestling against 
and your struggle to read scripture and your struggle with pornography and your struggle to be uh, with envy or your boss that you don't like, those things are flesh and blood manifestations of spiritual realities that are behind them because the, the immaterial world and the material world intersect and they impact one another. So the earth is at the heart of this struggle, but because there's a material and immaterial, there's a boundary between them. There's this boundary between the two realms, between our world and their world. But sometimes, for his own purpose, God will open a window to allow the light of the immaterial and spiritual realm to shine into the darkness of our world. Luke chapter 9 is the transfiguration. Jesus and I think three of his disciples go up on a mountain. And the scripture says he is transfigured before them, meaning that his clothes became white. And, and of course, the, you know, the Bible describes it as like whiter than any bleacher could bleach them. You know, it's, like they did, it's, like, it's like words fail to describe the magnificent glory that they were beholding. And that is because they were seeing something. They were seeing this window of the, of the spiritual, supernatural realm opened up before them, and it was shining on Jesus, and he was glorified in their presence. And they didn't know what to do. It was something unlike they had ever seen before. First Peter, or, or maybe it's Second Peter, he says, we were eyewitnesses. We saw this thing happen on the holy mountain. Now, the Old Testament prophets are those for whom God opens this window into another realm, and they see things. Ever read the Old Testament prophets? Many of them see things that are very bizarre, and it's because they're seeing things that human eyes do not typically see. God has opened a window for them, and he's let them look in on something that is otherworldly and spectacular. And then in many cases, they're told by an angel, write this down. Because your job is to be like an angel, but a human angel. Meaning, you see this thing in the heavenly realm, and you get to take that message, and you deliver that message back to other humans. So write this stuff down. Describe it. Describe what you see. And so they'll see dreams or visions, and they write them down. Angels, that's when a divine being, a heavenly being, crosses into our realm. And they've got something, they've got a message, they have something to say. God has sent them here for a, for a purpose. And they deliver messages and sometimes they perform works on God's behalf. And so these angels are, are holy beings, right? These are God's holy servants, a multitude of holy ones, we would call them. So these are unfallen, uncorrupted creatures. And none of us have ever seen anything like this before. And because of that... Oftentimes, in our modern minds, we dismiss it because we don't believe things that we can't see, taste, smell, touch, hear. If it's not perceivable by our five senses in the material realm, then we say, well, that's not real. These Bible authors, they're idiots. No. God has opened up for them something that we don't normally get to see. And they delivered that message to us. And we believe it with a heart of faith. That's what happened in Luke 2. The shepherds got this temporary glimpse where God had opened up a window to let them see and behold something in the heavenly realm, and they reported about it. And 
what they saw terrified them. Absolute sheer horror. A holy being had invaded our profane space. Of course they're going to be terrified. Whenever sinful people encounter perfect holiness, what's that like? Sinful person, a profane person, encounters sheer perfection, holiness. It, it functions like a preview of judgment. That's what's scary about it. It reminds us that, oh, you are very different than me, and it's not just because you're spiritual. It's because you are holy, and I am fallen. I am corrupt. So it functions like a preview of judgment. That's why God told Moses, man shall not see me and live. Death by holiness. That happened in the Old Testament. People died whenever God appeared. They died because of a holy, righteous, judgmental, in the right sense, judgmental manifestation of God came and people died. Judgment, death by holiness. The same thing is going on in Luke chapter 5. We'll see this in a few months. Luke chapter 5. Jesus tells Peter, cast your net on the other side. Peter's like, okay. Dude told me to do that. We're not having any luck. Why not? They cast the net on the other side. They haul in this huge catch of fish. Do you remember what Peter said? Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. When he recognized who Jesus was, the Holy One of God, he said, I, that would kill me to be in your presence. That's, that, was his, that was his feeling. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I have no business in your presence. He knew his own sinful condition and that he had, being around, being a sinner being around something holy is a dangerous place to be. Peter recognized that. So whenever sinful people enter the presence of some manifestation of holiness, even human holiness, that does conjure up a sense of dread. That's why the Apostle Paul talks about we are the aroma of life to life, but of death to those who are perishing. Because the presence of holiness brings with it the smell of dread, the smell of judgment. You ever wonder why some of your non-Christian friends don't want to come to church with you? It's not just because it's unfamiliar and awkward. It might be that. That's true. But people have this intuitive sense that, well, if I go to church, that's the place where God is, right? God's holy, God's perfect. I got no business being there. And of course, that's the response of somebody who doesn't know the character and the grace of God and why being in his presence is not threatening for those who are in Christ. But it is a, it is a fear of dread, a fear of judgment that keeps people from wanting to be around holiness. That's why Christians who are truly walking in obedience and holiness, even though there's not a judgmental bone in their body, will still be accused of being judgmental. Because people feel judged around holiness, even if the person is not judgmental. It's, it's a natural reaction. It's a, if you know, it's a fallen way of saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, O Christian, for you're judge me, judging me. It's, it's the same idea. Of course, Christians can be judgmental. We know that's true, too. But it is the presence of holiness that brings this fear of judgment, fear of dread. That's why it's scary. It's, it's scary to be in God's presence. 
So you and I, we have never been in the presence of something like this. We've never seen or witnessed or experienced anything approaching this, what was going on in Luke 2. We inhabit a profane world. This is a fallen world. This is a messed up place. And everything in our lives, everything we experience, everything about us is tainted in some way by the fall. It's affected by sin in some way. It's fractured and broken. So if God were to appear, boom, right now, in all of his glory, right now, we wouldn't live to tell about it. Well, in Christ, we would. But apart from Christ, it would just, it would be, he's too pure. He's too holy, too bright. We could not survive his presence. And what the shepherds saw was something along those lines. They saw an angel. One angel showed up on the scene, and they were sore afraid. They were filled with great fear. But then after that, what happened? A whole multitude of these heavenly creatures popped into the air. And they were singing. Glory to God. So they were scared out of their wits. This, here's what I find amazing about this story. We've just talked about the, the, the birth in the manger, the ordinary mundane nature of that. And then the announcement to the shepherds, which they were beside themselves with terror. What I find amazing about this story is that though the shepherds were terrified, Joseph and Mary witnessed a greater miracle, and they weren't terrified. Why? God's power and glory was unveiled to the shepherds. It was on display in all its brightness. But with Joseph and Mary, it was veiled. God had put a covering. God had obscured his glory in some way. John 1.14, the word wrapped himself in flesh and dwelt among us. That's why it didn't terrify them. The greater miracle is not the unveiled terror and splendor of heaven's glory that the, the shepherds saw on full, bright display. The greater miracle is that the source of that glory was concealed, was hidden, and wrapped up in a baby, a human child. In this little child, God's glory was, was contained. It was, his holiness was veiled. The, the brightness of God's glory was obscured. The majesty of God was hidden. So it should come as no surprise that the shepherds were afraid. Of course they were afraid. God's holiness was unveiled. But what is a surprise is that Joseph and Mary were not afraid at all. And the difference is that God's glory had been veiled. It had become incarnate. It had become wrapped in human flesh. So that way, the goriness was not just shining out all the time, killing people. His glory was wrapped up in this human baby, a humble circumstance. They held the Holy One of God the Son of the Most High God, in their arms. 
Jesus would later say that he is not here to condemn the world. He's here to save it, which means that he had to kind of keep his glory tucked away. And he tucked it away in the, hum, in the human form. So it is his, his appearance into the world, whenever glory appears, a lot of times it's bad news. Whenever the angel of the Lord appears in the Bible, a lot of times it's bad news. Something ugly is about to go down because there is a manifestation of God's judgment that's about to happen. So whenever the glory of God appears in a human form and the angels show up and scare everybody out of their minds, what do they say? Hey, fear not. Why? Because I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Christ the Lord. To the shepherds, they got to go tell their story. They have to be sort of like angels or prophets. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So the shepherds show up in Bethlehem. They find where the baby Jesus was, just as the angel had said. And they deliver their message. He said, here was the saying that was given to us, and they communicated this message. Verse 10 and 11, let's read that again. Here was the message that they delivered to Joseph and Mary. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. Not bad news, good news. Of great joy, not sadness and death and dread and judgment. No, great joy. It will be for all the people. For unto you is born. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? If your friend next door has a baby, you don't say, they don't say, hey, unto you is born. You're like, whoa, whoa, I'm not ready to commit to that just yet. They say, for unto you is born. This means this is your baby. This is your child. This child belongs to you in some way. Unto you is born this day in the city of David to fulfill the messianic profile, a savior who is Christ the Lord. So while Joseph and Mary were figuring out how to be new parents, how to nurse an infant, how to change a diaper, these shepherds walk in and inform them, hey, by the way, you're not going to believe what we just saw. There's a party going on in heaven because of this baby. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There is an invasion that has taken place in this story. The creator of all things has invaded this broken, sinful, profane world. And he did so in a way that no one could have ever imagined. God Almighty, wrapped up in human flesh, 
wrapped up in swaddling clothes, an infant nursing at his mother's breast, ten little fingers, ten little toes, arriving in humility, without all the pomp of a king, without this huge procession announcing this, this thing on earth, the way earthly kings might celebrate their own existence. But in the frailty and weakness of a child born to a teenage girl with an unplanned pregnancy who used a feeding trough as a crib. So for now, God has gone undercover. He's veiled. He will grow up in obscurity until one day his hour will come. He will teach the people. His law is love. His gospel is peace. He will break chains, for this slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression will cease. Sweet hymns of joy will raise in grateful chorus. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. Praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His task will cost him his life. But it will not end it. It will bring redemption and salvation to all who believe. This, my friends, is good news of great joy. For all the people, unto us is born this day in the city of David, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we give you all worship and praise, for you did something that nobody could have imagined. The Holy One of God took on flesh and blood and toenails, and hair, ears, became a human, growing up in obscurity and poverty. And this is Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One of God, and He is our Savior. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son, your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in you would not perish, would not face judgment, be condemned, but be raised again in the last day to eternal life. Lord, I pray that you will you'll remind us this Christmas season of everyone here, both those who believe and those who are not yet believers. I pray that you will remind us that Christ appeared not to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And may we find life, eternal life in his name. Because he is God, our Savior and Redeemer to whom belong all the glory in heaven and earth. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.